0: In our continuing study of Revelation today, we uh, we find ourselves in the longest of the seven letters, which is given to the least known city, uh, the city that we know the least about. That is, Thyatira was the smallest of the seven cities of Revelation, and uh, unlike the other cities, where I will show you a lot of cool stuff. Archaeologically speaking, there's just not that much to see in Thyatira. Uh, there's a few scattered ruins, and they're in, in uh, places right in the middle of the modern city there. It was uh, what we might term more of a blue-collar town. So it was unlike some of the larger cities that we've talked about so far in Revelation. It was likely that the church there on the whole, faced less overt persecution in Thyatira than than it did in other places. It is another inland city. As we kind of make our way, we've gone up the coast, and now we're coming back down this inland passage from Pergamum to Laodicea. Uh, It's uh, southeast of Pergamum. It was an artisan-based merchant-class city. We're first introduced to uh, Thyatira in the book of Acts, actually, where Paul encounters Lydia, and this was Lydia's hometown. She was from Thyatira, so they meet in Philippi, where she was living and working. But we're told that she was a seller of purple, which is a common trade in Thyatira. Uh, in fact, Thyatira was the center uh, for purple dye, from something called a madder root. So it was a vegetable dye that's formed. that that, that You you could make a a number of different colors from it, ranging from sort of a pinkish coral color down to an almost purple. Now, as you probably know, purple dyed cloth was uh, uh, for the wealthy. It was very hard to make, very difficult to get. Most of this purple cloth was made from a, uh, the dye was made from a sea snail, and so you had to collect these sea snails and extract the dye and then use that dye to make the purple cloth. And it was a very complicated process, very difficult, very expensive, and so purple cloth was extremely valuable. What the people at Thyatira did by coming up with uh, this uh, matter root purple is they, it's essentially the knockoff purple. its It's the Walmart version of Macy's purple, all right? And uh, they did very, very well with this because e- e- it was m- far less expensive to produce. And yet, uh, since they could, they could sell it for less than the regular purple cloth, but still much more than other cloth, uh, their profit margins were quite good. And they made a lot of uh, good money on purple cloth. And so it was a major industry in Thyatira. But it wasn't the only one. Uh, There was also uh, copper and bronze smiths, there were tanners, there were potters, there were wool and linen workers, and so you see you kind of have this working class, uh, craftsman based artisan economy, and even though it's kind of all people who work with their hands, it was not a poor city. These people did very, very well. This artisan economy treated them well, and they made uh, very good money doing it. The message to Thyatira sort of acknowledges in a couple of instances these different artisans and uses their products to sort of make its points. Now each of these trades had a trade guild and this is where the problem arose for the Christians. Most of the early Christian writers uh, forbid their members from uh, joining these trade guilds and the main reason was that pagan worship was integrated into the trade guilds. There's no separation, as you've kind of seen in in other instances in these letters so far, There's no separation between pagan worship and other elements of life, and so it's kind of difficult to escape from. So these trade guilds would have meetings, and the meetings would very often be held in the public places of the town, and the public places of the town were pagan temples. And so you'd have a meeting in a pagan temple, and then if you had a meal – for your guild meeting, guess what the meal would be? It would be meat that had been sacrificed to that pagan uh, idol or that pagan god. And so early Christians largely rejected largely rejected guild membership, but that came at, at an, a, a considerable cost to them personally. It, it was very difficult to make as good a living if you weren't part of the guild. You had to kind of You're sort of really uh, almost uh, working in the black market in order to sell your products. So we come to this letter in Revelation chapter 2. We'll start uh, with verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more, than you did at first. Sounds pretty good. The church was active, faithful, and missional. It's it's a good report. It really seems, at least in regard to doing good works, that this church in Thyatira is all that you would hope the church would be. They haven't lost sight of their first love. They have persevered through the trials that they faced. And not only have they kept the faith, but they're actually doing more now than they did when they started. You know, most of us, we get very excited when we come to faith in Jesus and we're very motivated, and then over time that sort of wanes and we fall back into some routines. They've actually, they're growing in their faith and in their service. So they're doing more than they did at first. But the letter continues. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. sounds quite serious. The failure at Thyatira is in their tolerance of heresy. This heresy exists in the church. It's being taught there. Some have been taken in by it, but not all of them. Maybe even not the majority of them, because this church is still doing a lot of good. But this heresy is being taught, and even by those who are not taken in by it, it's being tolerated, being allowed. It's not entirely clear what she's teaching, but we can take from the context is again, some form of syncretism. We're going to blend together Christianity with sort of these other pagan traditions. And the things that she's accused of suggest that she's compelling perhaps some members to participate in the guilds, because a lot of what we're talking about, the sexual immorality and the food sacrifice to idols, these all have to do with the ways that these pagan gods were worshipped. There's also a mention later on in the passage of deep secrets, a claim to having deep secrets. Uh, That might be a reference to secret pagan rituals. There were secret societies within these pagan cults. might be a reference to our old friend the Gnostics. You Remember the Gnostics is a group that gave the early Christians a lot of trouble. The Gnostics claimed to have special knowledge, special revelation, and they could add all of this information and come up with these kind of bizarre things because they were hearing them directly from God. She's called Jezebel, but that name is probably not literal. It's probably symbolic because Jezebel, carries a lot of connotative weight with it. Jezebel in the Old Testament is the archetype of the pagan seductress. Jezebel in the period of kings, she was a Phoenician princess, so she's not from Israel. Uh, It was a political marriage arranged uh, by the father of uh, then Prince Ahab, who later became King Ahab. And Ahab Uh, of Israel and his wife Jezebel are infamously wicked. Ahab said to be one of the worst worst kings of Israel and uh, Jezebel did not do anything to improve his reputation. As she comes from uh, Phoenician culture she's polytheistic and she is most importantly a Baal worshiper and she as she comes into Israel as she becomes queen of Israel, makes no secret of the fact that she is trying to spread her pagan beliefs within Israel. And so at her suggestion, at her request, Ahab sets up an altar of Baal and sets up Asherah poles right there in the midst of Israel, and this was scandalous. There are a lot of other stories that reveal that she was brutal and that she's Cunning, she comes to a really terrible end, or her body's devoured by dogs. But she um, is synonymous with evil in Hebrew culture. But her fundamental flaw was using this position of great power and influence that she has within Israel to compel Israel to idolatry. And that's what's happening in this church. In this church, the influence is coming from within. Now, all of these churches face similar temptations and hardships, though the church of Thyatira arguably has perhaps less of that than some of the others. Their distinctive problem is their lack of a response to what's happening inside their fellowship. This woman in the fellowship somehow has become very influential and is allowed to teach uh, these things. She is a compelling believers to idolatrous practices, and apparently this is happening uncontested. And so Jesus is very clear in this message. He says, if you don't do something about it, I will. I, I'm going to deal with this. Personally, I will lay her out on a bed of suffering. She likes to commit adultery, adultery being the sort of word picture for uh, idolatry. If she wants to commit adultery. I'm going to lay her down on a bed of suffering. I'm going to make all of her followers suffer, and then I'm going to put them to death. says, you're going to know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. So you can't come to a decision. You're not willing to put a label on what's happening in your own fellowship. Well, I know exactly what's happening in your fellowship, and I will label it, and then I will come and judge it. I'm not waiting, not waiting until the final judgment to deal with this particular situation. Now, some scholars associate Jezebel with something called the cult of Sambath. Now, Sambath was a, a, a Sibyl or an oracle, a prophetess. And it's not really clear from history when she supposedly lived. Uh, some traditions hold that Sambath was actually a daughter-in-law of Noah, that she was one of the wives of Noah's sons that was actually on the ark. But these uh, Sibyls were, were pagan prophets. And they would, uh, they, so she, there was this cult of Sambath that existed just outside of Tyre on the road just outside of Thyatira. and so some scholars associate this Jezebel in the church with that cult. They say there's some relationship here, and uh, Sambath had was sometimes called the uh, the Sybil of Persia, sometimes called the Sybil of the Hebrews. So there's this long history of this weird kind of syncretistic religious system that had been trying to integrate itself into Jewish thinking and now perhaps is trying to integrate itself into Christian thinking. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to say, looking back, whether or not that connection is accurate. The one thing that we do know is shortly after this passage was written, the cult of Sambath at Thyatira disappears from history without a trace. And so perhaps... (laughs) Perhaps Jesus did exactly what he said he would do and just wiped the earth clean of her. Now, this is, this is a letter about heresy. It, it, it's about how seriously God takes the problem of heresy. And that raises some difficult questions for us. I'll, let me just start by saying, it is tempting to label every disagreement as heretical, right? Kind of like today in our culture, someone disagrees with you, they're liable to call you a racist or a bigot, not because they've made an argument for that, but because it's just an easy place to go to. They might call you a fascist. I'm not sure people in our culture who use the term fascist even know what a fascist is anymore. It's just something you call somebody that you're in an argument with. You're a fascist. End of discussion, right? It's a way to discredit someone that you're having an argument with. It's easy for us to do that with heresy and heretic. have disagreements with people and just immediately say, well, you're, you're outside my understanding, therefore your words are heretical. The simple fact is that Christians don't agree on everything, and even though we would like to think that when people sincerely approach Scripture, they're all going to come to the same conclusions, in reality that doesn't happen. The first century Christian writers, the writers of our New Testament, warn us about this. Paul tells us don't, don't allow... Uh, questionable arguments to, to come between you. Don't, don't allow these arguable f- ideas to cause disunity in your fellowship. That's the simple reality. We often have done just that. We've allowed sometimes minor issues to be treated as major issues, and we create division and disunity in our fellowships over things that we simply uh, disagree about, that there's room for debate, if you will. But if, in fact, we have been dogmatic about these issues in the past, I would suggest to you that in a lot of ways the pendulum has swung to the opposite extreme, where we're sort of disinclined to question any theology that's presented to us in any setting. And one of the things that we need to take away from this letter to Thyatira is that it is dangerous to tolerate a known heresy. Jesus takes it very seriously, so we probably should too. And that raises the question, how do we distinguish between a sincere difference in understanding that we might have, a difference in conclusions, a difference in interpretation, And a heretical position. How do do we make that distinction? I think this passage probably suggests some things to us. There are some telltale signs of heresy. And here's the first one. Heretics claim special authority. Revelation has already talked to us about false uh, apostles and false prophets and how they need to be tested. And I want to be clear, if we look at Ephesians chapter 4, we know that these are gifts that God gives to the body of believers, and apostles and prophets are, are part of those leadership gifts. We need those spiritual gifts at work in the church today. That's not the problem. The problem is that when these people are claiming to be apostles and prophets, they're claiming a sort of a special authority that went along with those terms in the days of Scripture, all right? And with that authority comes the ability to add to or take away from the gospel, sometimes from the entirety of the Bible, This special authority confers upon those who claim it an ability to add new doctrine to Scripture or to essentially erase doctrine from Scripture by refusing to preach on it. So instead of an authority that is rooted in Scripture, that comes from our submission to Scripture and our submission to Jesus Christ, these are individuals who claim to have authority over scripture, and by extension, to have authority over Jesus himself. Another telltale sign of heresy is secret knowledge. The Gnostics claimed insight into secret things, special knowledge that went beyond anything that you could read or understand from, from the teachings of Jesus or the teachings of the apostles. And they caused a lot of trouble. For early Christianity, but this heresy has never completely left the church, and we hear about it today. uh, You got to be really careful, like on Christian radio. They're always talking about this stuff. There's a Bible code. Bible code that if you if you break the code, then you're going to learn all these secrets from Scripture. They're going to come pouring out. There are these obscure doctrines that are revealed by these things that we've come to understand. There are these secret strategies that are going to unlock your prayer life and make you powerful. This is all a claim to secret knowledge. And then there's scriptural acrobatics. And this honestly can take a lot of different forms. Uh, sometimes, what we do is we take disparate pieces of scripture, take this verse from over here and this verse from over here, and we tie them together and we force them like, like wet clay and make a single passage out of disparate passages and say, Well, putting these two things together, it proves my new idea. Sometimes it's about disregarding the context, the audience, and the intent behind a piece of scripture in order to make that scripture say something that it doesn't actually say. And right now, if you are on social media, this is in social media all the time. Constantly encountering stuff on social media that are, that are verses from scripture taken completely out of their context to make a point that they were never intended to make. We could all have full-time jobs just policing social media over the, all the misuse of scripture. So be careful when you're out there. Or it could be that we reject some new understanding that a deeper study of Scripture might reveal to us. If you have never changed a position, if you just uh, came into the church, learned what you learned, and have never changed a position on anything based on your study of Scripture, you're not studying very hard. I've changed a lot of things over the years. in In fact, there's some sermons that I regret preaching. I've come to a different understanding and go, oh, yeah, that that wasn't very good. Why? Well, because the more we understand about context, the more we understand about culture, the more we understand about languages, Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and how all of these things came to be, sometimes we arrive at a new understanding. And sometimes, regardless of how much depth, how much study we can do, people don't want to hear it. They want to believe what they've always believed and don't confuse me with the facts. That's scriptural acrobatics as well. Sometimes it's about twisting language. Our culture is really good at this. We'll just define words differently than they've ever been defined, and that way when we read the scriptures, they'll mean something completely different. Uh, We'll twist the language. We'll twist the context. We'll twist the translation in order to make a passage say virtually the opposite of what it actually says. And then there's something called uh, proof texting, or in theological terms we would call it eisegesis. It's beginning with our desired outcome and then going to Scripture and custom pulling those passages that support my view so I can build this understanding and make it work. These are all examples of scriptural acrobatics. Another defining quality is practiced ignorance. And sometimes this means that we ignore things that we know to be uh, we ignore things that we know are not biblical. And sometimes it means we just ignore Bible so that we never, <laughs> come to the conclusion that something isn't biblical. We, we sort of prefer our, our shallowness, our shallowness of understanding. I want to tell you that today, in today's Christian culture, Bible-teaching churches don't so much compete with the views of other Bible-teaching churches. What they find themselves competing with is shallow theology. I want you to just understand how this works. If you're sending your, your child off to school and you've got two choices for them. and One choice is you're going to go to school and they're going to learn reading and writing and arithmetic and history and they're also going to have P.E. and recess and lunchtime and arts and crafts. Or I have another option for you. You have this special school that all they do is lunchtime, recess, and arts and crafts. Which school is your child going to choose? Most children are going to choose to do arts and crafts and recess, right? So sometimes we're not, when in the church – We're not competing with somebody else's other theological view that we're arguing back and forth about. A lot of times we're just competing with the church that will offer you a shallow theology that makes you feel good and never asks anything of you. And that's the reality of the church world today. We work very, very hard to make sure that when you're here, when you attend one of our classes, or when you're listening to my message, that you get some substance But people don't always choose substance, do they? And so when we're given a choice between substance and sort of a feel-good message, a lot of times we'll just choose the feel-good message. Not that it's my intent to make you feel bad. I would love for you to feel good this morning. I just want you to do it with some substance. I want you to do it with some biblical truth. Here's the other thing I need you to understand. Here are these telltale signs of heresy. Special authority, secret knowledge, scriptural acrobatics, and practiced ignorance. Understand this. There are movements within Christianity today that practice all of the above. There are movements right now in our Christian world that do all of these things, and do we call them out? Not really. Oh, some people have made an effort to, but on the whole, the Christian world has taken this approach that says, well, we we don't want to be judgmental. And we don't want to put God in a box. And some of the things that these idiots say makes me feel good, so I don't really kind of want to completely dismiss it. Not only do we welcome or ignore the heresy that sometimes arises within the church, within the broader Christian community. We see their outward success, and we'll even sometimes mimic their style. We will sing their songs, we'll read their books, and especially online, we will repeat all their quotes. In effect, we end up tacitly endorsing heretical movements to the onlooking world. Well, understand this Jesus brings special judgment against false teachers. False teaching is very, very serious business. Scripture's clear. If you look at James 3, teachers are going to be held to a higher standard. Believe me, I think about that a lot. <laughs> teachers are going to be held to a higher standard because they're responsible. For the truth. They're responsible for the truth that people hear. They're responsible for the amplified influence that they possess. And I think I, I have to say that I think the, the Christian world today will be held responsible not only for its false teaching, but for some of the shallow teaching that we've done that allows false teaching to persist. We say our phrase is there's a special place in hell. There's a special place in hell for false teachers. Jesus says it this way, so I'm going to bring down suffering and I'm going to make an example of these people. If we tolerate their heresy, if we shrug it off, I think part of that judgment falls on us. So Revelation continues in verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Now, remember that encouragement in Revelation is not the kind of encouragement that we're accustomed to. We read that passage and we think, whew, oh, we got off. <laughs> that is a good thing, right? I'm not going to burden you with anything else. That's the kind of encouragement that we're accustomed to. Make it easier for me. That is not intended as encouragement in this letter. It's quite the opposite. It's basically Jesus saying, because of this heresy in your midst, this is all that you're going to be able to accomplish. You're going to be limited by this. Those, uh, uh, those heresies throttle the church's mission. There are some people in this church who are completely innocent but the very presence of heresy in the church limits their capacity to be further involved in the mission of Jesus. I understand there are lots of things that churches do in order to fulfill the mission. And there are so many things that we are working so hard on right now. But even if those things that we're working so hard on, even if all of that effort comes to fruition, even if it's blessed, we understand it is not us. It is God who did it. Now, I I, want to be clear. We're not working extra hard right now because we think the future is dependent on what we do. We're working extra hard now because of the things that we see God doing. We're just trying to keep up. And keeping up with God (laughs) has proven to be exhausting, right? Amen. You see, when a church's mission is blessed, it's because God is behind it. We aren't excited here because of the things that we are doing. We're excited because of the things that we believe God is doing. But even God seems to limit his expectation for the church wherever heresy is tolerated. Whether it's us chasing the latest unbiblical fad or if it's us holding to unbiblical traditions of the past, Heresy ties us down. It's like an anchor, holds us back. It keeps us from, from fulfilling the mission. Now, I again, I have to be clear, I'm not talking about filling the room. There are plenty of false teachers who can fill a room. Some of the largest churches in this country are led by false teachers. Now, that doesn't mean that every large church is false and that every Small church is somehow more biblical that that that's not how that works, but understand that that shallow message appeals to a broader audience It's not about filling the room as much as we would like to fill this room. The mission is making disciples and the point here, the point here is that you cannot make disciples and endorse falsehoods at the same time. It just doesn't work because you're asking people to seek the truth of Jesus Christ while you're asking them to absorb falsehood at the same time. It just, it's it's not possible. Doing away with those falsehoods is, is, is inherently necessary in order for us to fulfill the mission of making disciples. And so as we read these words, saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to burden you with anything else because this is a burden enough unto itself, one of the things that we have to understand about that is that we have a choice right now. We can be a church on a mission, or we can be a church that barely hangs on while it waits for Jesus to come back. And a lot of churches in this country have decided that barely hanging on is just a lot easier than being a church on a mission. I'd rather be a church on a mission, no matter what it costs. Verse 26 is to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end. I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, Jesus says, look, those who seek the light are going to be the ones who receive the light. Now, later in Revelation, Jesus is going to reveal to us that he himself is the bright morning star. So what's the significance of that? You seek the light, I'm going to give you the light, but not only am I going to give you the light, I'm going to give you myself. Just keep seeking the truth. No matter the cost, understand that if you're victorious in this, you'll receive not only the truth, not only the light, but you will receive me. Now, what do we do? What do we do? If you take this passage literally, what it means is that we can Tolerate the darkness, or we can have the light, but we can't do both. And so much of the Christian world today, we're trying to have the world and love Jesus. We're trying to listen to false teachers and love Jesus. We're trying to be a part of religious tradition and love Jesus bringing these things together truth and falsehood and we're wondering why it never seems to work right maybe it's time for us to just be free to be be free of the deception free of the falsehood free of the the Jezebel's of of the world and, and within the church let it all go and be free to serve Jesus.